0: Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm interviewing Laura Morelli, the author of The Gondola Maker, an award-winning coming-of-age novel set in 16th-century Venice. The book begins with the burning of a boat. Chapter 1. Venice, 1581. I chew my lower lip while I wait to see my father's gondola catch fire. Beneath the boat, a pile of firewood is stacked so high that I find myself in the odd position of looking up at the underside of its black hull. A meticulous servant or day-laborer has split the logs and arranged them into neat stacks, then pressed dried brush into the spaces between the wood, with the intention to start an impressive blaze. The gondola has been lashed to the largest logs of the pyre, yet it remains skewed at an angle. From my vantage point, I cannot help but admire the craft's flowing lines, its elegant prow reaching toward the sky as if to defy this injustice. My father had nothing to do with the crime committed in this boat, of course. I feel certain that none of the onlookers has any idea that my father, our republic's most renowned gondola maker, and I, a young man barely worthy of note, crafted this gondola with our own hands." Surely no one has noticed our catanella, the maple-leaf emblem we carve into the prow of each gondola that emerges from the Vianello workshop. I stand in a crowd of bakers, clockmakers, tailors, housewives, fishermen, and merchants, all hungry for a fiery spectacle. I cast my eyes to what must be hundreds of individuals gathered around me. No, not one of them is thinking of my proud father or myself. Even though I helped my father craft this fine boat just two years ago in our family boatyard, the only man on people's minds is the one who threw the rock that started this humiliating affair. And now, please join me in welcoming Laura Morelli. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Hello,
1: Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: Uh, the Boat Burning is so fascinating and unusual an opening that I'm tempted to plow right in, but uh, I'm going to restrain myself, and uh, let's start, as I always do, by asking you about your background. Um, I know you're an art historian. You have a PhD from Yale and a teaching career. Uh, you've also published a nonfiction series uh, made in France, made in Italy, made in the Southwest, and have another underway, including a book on artisans of Venice, and uh, you give TED Talks. So how did you decide to add a novel to the mix, and where did you find the time to write one
1: well I've been working on the gondola maker for about seven years um, I started writing it in 2007 and um, was in the midst at that time of working on lots of other projects and raising my family and um, the gondola maker kept kind of going on the back burner I continued to put it away and take it out and put it away and take it out um, and by the time it was finally ready to see the light of day. Uh, lo and behold, it was 2014. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a long time coming. The good news is that the book industry had changed so dramatically during those seven years that um, that it was a really great time to, to bring the story out.
0: I think it always takes a long time, actually. It really, uh, I know my first novel, if, if we don't count the 10 years that I was working on it before I really got serious, it was like... I think it was six years for the first one and four years for the second one and then I got it down to two so
1: oh good for you that's great
0: <laughs> but there's a lot of rewriting and so on at the beginning before you really figure out what you're doing
1: right and I think there is some benefit to putting a manuscript away for quite a while and then pulling it out again you see it in a completely new light
0: yes absolutely so um
1: Why did you decide to write a novel? Well, I wanted to write a novel probably ever since I could write, which is, what, about four or five years old? I really always had that in my head as a dream, but I just had a lot of other things that I wanted to do with my life first. And, um, you know, but I just knew that 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 would sort of fit in at some point. And when the story of the gondola maker and his complicated relationship with his family came into my head, I knew the time had come.
0: And how did you go about? I mean, you just sat down and write? Did you have a, a, a writer's group, or did you show it to people, or how did you get going?
1: Um, my first draft was written between 5 and 7 a.m., <laughs> Every day for about um, nine or 10 months. And I just was very disciplined about my writing um, hours. Sometimes I would write more words than others. I I didn't really have a specific, you know, word count. But um, but the first draft was done like that. Um, And then after that, um, as I said, life got in the way and I kept putting it away and pulling it out and revising and revising and revising. When I got to a point where I felt like it was... you know, more of a second draft. Then I started sending it to people who I respected, to family, to friends. Um, I did at that point get involved with a writer's group. Um, Eventually, I hired a developmental editor since this was my first work of fiction. I wanted to make sure that, um, you know, I had sort of hit all the right beats with the story. And, And then, you know, from there, of course, it went to a more traditional kind of production process with the copy editor.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I mean, it's a beautifully written book. It's beautifully edited and designed, um, and it's a very interesting and unusual story. You mentioned the changing publishing climate, and you self-published this book, Um it, was that always your intention to self publish it? No,
1: not at all. In fact, um, you know, I had three traditionally published books before The Gondola Maker, and certainly up to that point, um, that was the only option. So, certainly when I started writing The Gondola Maker, and as I worked through it, I always had in my head that I would just submit it to my agent and, and go to New York publishing. But um, in that time that I was writing and revising, I started to see the the publishing market um, undergo this great transformation. And I was intrigued by the idea of, of going independent and um, seeing what that might hold. Um, I was really, I think, more lured by the educational opportunity <laughs> of it because you know when you have a, a New York publisher they do the the production of the book meaning the design of the, the cover and the interior and um, you know the the pre-press the printing and then they do the distribution and so those were aspects of bookmaking that I really didn't know um, I knew about the writing I knew about the editorial process and I knew about the marketing because even if you're traditionally published, you still have to be very involved with your marketing. But it was that production and distribution that I really didn't know much about. So I decided that this was an opportunity for me to try to learn that. So it was really more of a learning experience. And being my first work of fiction, it was already an experiment for me. <laughs> so it was it just added to the experimental nature of what I was doing. That's very interesting. Uh, have you been happy with the results? Oh, very much. Yes, I, I would definitely do it again. Um, you know, I like being able to um, have a little bit more control over all of the different aspects of what's going on. I like be, having a more direct connection with my readers. I think that's really um, important and so wonderful. It's such a wonderful aspect of publishing that, that we authors never had in the past. And um, so, yes, I would. I would definitely do it again.
0: So how do you go about getting the word out besides coming here to talk to us, for which we're very grateful?
1: (laughs) Oh, thank you. Well, you know, sometimes you do, I think, as an author feel as though you're shouting into the void. (laughs) But uh, but I'm pretty active on on social media. That's, I would say, you know, my primary way of interacting with readers. But I also speak often um, at live events. I'm sometimes invited to speak, for example, at a university or some in some sort of academic setting. I've also spoken um, at private events. I, last month, I was at a private um, formal dinner that I actually organized, and we um, I worked with a, with a resort, and we came up with a Venetian theme and a Venetian menu, and um, I gave a presentation. So, you know, that was a, an Example of a private event. So I do a lot of um, a lot of speaking and then um, interacting with readers online.
0: That's interesting. That's good to know. I'm sure there are people listening who are um, taking notes as they listen to you. So so let's get to the, the boat burning, which is the opening of The Gondola Maker. Um, the eye of the passage I read is Luca Vianello. And uh, I, deliberate, I usually I explain um, that before I read the passage. But I thought in this case, it would be interesting to go straight into the interview and, and explore it there. Um, and the boat that Luca is watching being burned uh, was built by his father, a master craftsman, descended from a long of Gondola Makers. Uh, Why is the gondola being burned? Uh, And as a novelist, what made you decide to open with this incident?
1: Well... You know, truth is stranger than fiction. And, and in this case, um, this incident of the gondola burning actually was pulled directly from the pages of a historical document in Venice. Um, the the actual Venice, the actual event, excuse me, the actual event was recorded in 1500 by an observer who um, said that at that time, There, um, there were two gondoliers who were rivals, and one of the gondoliers apparently had been carrying around a rock in his gondola just in case he ran across his rival somewhere on the Grand Canal, and he did, and so um, he pulled out the rock and promptly threw it at his rival. Well, as luck would have it, the passenger in the other gondola happened to be the French ambassador, and so when this rock hit. the the side of the passenger compartment of the French ambassador's gondola, the ambassador emerged from the compartment and was so angry that he went directly to the Venetian Venetian Council of Ten and lodged a formal complaint. And um, the, the gondolier who threw the rock promptly fled from the city, but his gondola was confiscated and burned on a pyre between the two columns of justice um, just outside the the Doge's palace. They're still there today. And um, so this act of boat burning and of public retribution, for me, it had so many layers of Venetian Renaissance culture and justice and the lies of the gondoliers and the gondola makers themselves that it was such a rich... Um, event that I decided that was a, a a way to start this story that would have a lot of legs.
0: Yeah, and it does. I mean, it's really the detail is fascinating, and and the thing itself is so strange. I mean, if a cabbie gets into a fight with another cabbie, you don't expect them to make a public bonfire in the middle of <laughs> Philadelphia and take <laughs> out the cows. <camp. laughs>
1: exactly. That's a perfect analogy. I mean, that is exactly what happened, you know, and it is strange. But, you know, there's so many strange things about um, Venetian culture in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And, you know, the Venetians were very much aware of their status and their position in the world. It was, you know, seen as a city, you know, it was a model of government and of uh, fairness. And so, you know, to hear these stories These strange tales is just so fascinating.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, it leads wonderfully into my next um, question, which is the detail itself is in the story is very rich. This is one of the things that I, I absolutely loved about this book. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, I knew what a gondola was, right? I mean, I've seen pictures of them all my life, but I had no idea how much work went into creating one. And and you really do a wonderful job with that. How much research did you have to do, and what kinds of sources are available for for that period?
1: Well, as I mentioned, the Venetians were aware of their position, and luckily, their um, history is voluminously documented through this period. So there is a there is a lot to draw from. Um, I went about the research for this book in what was probably an unusual way. Um, I w- had written a book before this called Made in Italy, which is a, a tour of all of these traditional master craftsmen through Italy, people making gondolas and ceramics and leather and glass and all of these beautiful uh, centuries-old traditions, these things that, that, that you want to go and see when you visit Italy. And in the course of doing research for that book, I actually did quite a bit of research on the history of the gondola and, and, and the gondola makers. Um, but this novel was then an opportunity to take that research to a much deeper level and take a deeper dive into um, more of the the stories of the people um, behind these traditions. And interestingly, there is um, quite a bit of Research about the gondola makers themselves because, of course, they were members of a guild, and the guilds kept statutes. Um, They had very strict regulations. Um, They regulated everything from dowering their daughters to burying their dead, ministering to their sick, um, specifying what kinds of wood that they needed to use in the construction of their boats. It was very detailed. Um, For gondoliers, however, um, there's very... very little of historical documentation because, of course, they were members of the lower class. Many of them were in domestic service. They were nameless, faceless very often. And um, the only historical records that we have of these boatmen, of which there were tens of thousands in the Renaissance in, in Venice, are those acts that they did that were against the law. So you have this picture of these guys as being just very rough and tumble, and and um, and they were notorious for their foul language and these terrible acts. And so we have this image of the gondoliers as these, these terrible guys, whether that was... Um, a balanced view. I doubt it. It's just probably what appeared in the historical document because that's the only documentation of them that we have.
0: That's really quite fascinating. Um, I specialize in 16th century Russia and the gap. I mean, the wonderful thing about Italy or France or England or even the American colonies is that you have all of this written material and we have hardly any. I mean, the stuff that was written down is mostly, you know, send so many bushels of grain to the right. Tsar's army, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? And even that, because everything was built of wood, except the Kremlin itself and, and, you know, monasteries and things like that, every 40 years, you know, the whole thing burned down. And so until about 1650 or so, where people start to get serious about preserving the (laughs) targets. I mean, they didn't have a state budget in Russia in 1640. That's that's a
1: good reason to make it all up, Right. (laughs) Right.
0: But there is this sort of element to it in that, um, again, you know, I think this is true almost everywhere, actually, but it's certainly true there, too, is that there's hardly anything for the 16th century. But for the 17th century, you know, people who are of a lower social class, they almost always show up because they're in trouble. And so they're in court records or whatever. Absolutely. Um, but of course,
1: The same is true for people working in, you know, people's homes. They, they're they only mentioned because there's a necklace missing or something right. like that. So.
0: <laughs> of course, that makes it fun for the fiction writer because, Absolutely. I mean, these are the people that you want to write about, not the, uh, the goody two-shoes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Nobody wants to read about them. <laughs> exactly. Um, so this book uh, is above all Luca's story. So tell us about him as a person and what he's going through. I mean, we don't have to. We're, we're certainly not going to go all the way through your plot because we, uh, we, we want to keep we want to whet people's appetites so they go read the book. But um, we can certainly go through the first quarter or third or whatever makes you comfortable. And and um, and he is is the the heart of the book. So tell us what you can about him and where. Okay. Uh, oh, actually even. Even before you do that I ha- you mentioned that you were working on Made in Venice did the idea for The Gondola Maker come to you before that or after that?
1: Um, The idea for the gondola maker germinated inside my head while I was doing the research for my book Made in Italy. And, um, you know, as I traveled through Italy and and I was interviewing makers of gondolas and glass and ceramics and leather and all of these wonderful traditions, I I kept hearing the same story over and over again because I was interviewing these contemporary artisans and they constantly said to me, Laura, it's so critical that we pass on this torch of tradition to the next generation. You know, we must pass our craft down to our sons and daughters, our grandchildren, otherwise it will die. And I I heard this story over and over again and I began to wonder what would happen if the child were not willing or able for some reason to take on that responsibility and to pass that craft forward. And um, so with this story of the heir to this gondola boatyard and his complicated relationship with his father bubbled up. And that was the, the root of this story. Um, Luca Vianello in the story is the heir to one of Venice's most esteemed gondola boatyards. It's been passed down in his family for many generations and it's his responsibility to carry that torch of tradition as the oldest son and the heir. Um, his his life has been prearranged for him. His marriage to uh, the maker of, uh, of the wrought iron prows that are that are put on the front of the boat um, has already been as he's been uh, betrothed to the daughter of the of the uh, prowl maker. Um, it's all been arranged for him. Um, however, there's a little bit of complication because actually Luca is not the firstborn. Um, his mother um, had many uh, miscarriages before he came along and, um, and also had a son whose name was Primo, which is a, a, a name in Italian, but it means the firstborn. And so this young Primo um, actually drowned in the canal outside the boatyard as a toddler. And so Luca goes through his childhood knowing that he is the heir, but he's not really, he doesn't feel that he's the rightful heir. He wasn't really the firstborn. Um, To make things more complicated, he's also left-handed, much to his father's chagrin. Now, if you know anything about medieval or Renaissance culture, um, you know that left-handedness was a sign sometimes of of being, um, you know, could be the mark of the devil. It was just a really bad, Thing And especially if you're a craftsman and you're supposed to follow your father, um, you know, being left handed is just not good. So he has this um, kind of resentment toward his father who who doesn't treat him very well um, growing up and um, who's very heavy handed with him. So um, without giving too much away, there's a tragedy in the boatyard. And Luca, for him, it is the sign that that his destiny must lie. Elsewhere, outside of his father's boatyard, and so he um, seeks out his fortune on the streets of Venice, and um, and that is the beginning of his his journey um, through through the uh, the underbelly of, of, of Venice for uh, for the the months to come after this event.
0: Yes, and I think we should emphasize that, you know, in 16th century Venice, there's no real welfare system or anything like that. I mean, you could get alms uh, from the rich or you could perhaps get a free meal at a monastery, which he does at one point. But um, on your own means really on your own. You could fall into the canal or die of starvation and nobody would really do much to you except shrug and walk past you.
1: Right, and you know, in in um, in 16th century Venice, the the social structures were so um, rigid, and that was another thing that interested me about this time period. Is you know, someone who is an artisan and an heir to an enterprise like a boatyard, you know, that was the box that they were born into, and they were not likely to venture into any other box. And so, for someone to go outside of of that box that they were born into was a big leap, a huge leap. And then to not really have any box to go into at all it was <laughs> even more of a hardship. So um you know that's that's an interesting aspect I think to this time period and I tried to bring that out in the story.
0: So tell us how Luca survives. At least give us a hint. <laughs>
1: well he um, after living on the streets for a short time he decides that he it's time to pick himself up and brush himself off and he ends up procuring a job um, as a dock hand working at a traghetto which is the equivalent of a taxi stand in, in Renaissance Venice it's a, a place an organized kind of place where there are uh, boats for hire there are uh, boatmen or gondoliers who could take you from one side of the Grand Canal. to the other or to other points in the city. And he procures a job uh, loading and unloading um, chicken crates and merchandise from boats. And um, eventually he um, becomes kind of the sidekick to this older gondolier named Alvis, who's um, kind of one of these stereotypical rough and tumble gondoliers who I described earlier, who's, you know, got a a foul mouth, who's um, always uh, womanized and drinking and getting himself in trouble by extorting his passengers. And um, so Luca begins to learn the ropes of being a gondolier in 16th century Venice. And, of course, he already knows how to handle a boat.
0: Yes, um, and he does. uh, And, you know, he's quite young. He's 16, 17. How how old is he in the story? Um, He's
1: actually um, 21. Oh, okay.
0: So, I'm sorry, I had forgotten that detail. So, so he's right on the age where he should be moving out. I mean, at least in our world, he would be moving out into the world. And in, in his world, he's supposed to now be assuming the mantle of his father, I suppose. That's right. Exactly right. Um, so, as an indirect result of meeting Alvis, um, Luca also makes the acquaintance of the, the painter, Master Trevisan. Trevisan. Um and there are lots of themes here for us to explore, including the fact that you're an art historian. Did you particularly want to have a painter in the story?
1: Oh, yes. Actually, I, I, love, um, I loved writing um, Trevisan's character, I, even more so than I expected. Um, he is not based on any one particular um, Venetian Renaissance painter that I had in mind, but you know there are many, many sources to draw from about the... The workshops and the inner workings of a, a Venetian Renaissance painter's studio, and so um, you know there was a lot of material to work with there. Everything from the social status of the painter in, in 16th century Venice, and you know this is a time when there is a divide happening between artists, quote unquote, and artisans, quote unquote, and so I wanted to explore that a little bit. That you know here's this guy who's the the heir. To to a gondola boatyard and is kind of just scraping by, um, and then he ends up working in the domestic service of this master Trevisan, who's this uh, famous and wealthy painter who is um, painting for some of the, the wealthiest people in Venice. And um, I also wanted to explore a little bit about uh, Trevisan's workshop practices, which would have been timely um, at that time, for example, uh, painters in 16th century Venice works experimenting with grinding shards of Murano glass into their paint pigments, and that imparted a very um, lucid and beautiful coloration and, um, at, to their paintings, and, and these were highly sought after not only in Venice, but elsewhere in Europe. And so Trevizan is kind of in the middle of all of these changes that are happening in the uh, in the, the world of painting. Um, and then Luca has the great fortune um, to become um, more allied with Trevizan and actually moves into his house eventually and becomes his his own private boatman. And that opens up a whole new world into this, uh, into upper... And once Luca becomes employed as Trevizan's private boatman, Boatman, then that opens up a whole new world into the upper-class society of Renaissance Venice. And for the first time in his life, Luca meets a lot of the movers and shakers of, uh, of, of his world in Renaissance Venice. And more specifically, he comes in contact with um, a mysterious young lady.
0: Uh, who Master Chosan is painting.
1: That's right. She is um, coming into Master Trevizon's studio to sit for a portrait, and um, so Luca glimpses her whenever she comes to sit for the portrait, and then when no one's looking, he sneaks into the artist's studio to pull the uh, the curtain back and see the portrait in progress. Um, And that captivates him throughout the book.
0: So how much do you want to tell us about her or do you want to keep her identity uh, under wraps for the moment
1: no I can tell you something about her that the, the uh, this woman's name is Juliana Zanki and she is the daughter of one of the city's wealthiest bankers mm-hmm. um, what Luca doesn't know actually he knows very little about her except that she shows up occasionally to sit for a portrait uh, but what he doesn't know is that her father's bank has failed and in fact her father has also died suddenly and so like Luca, she herself is in a position of of a a dramatic life change. Um, And she's also, like him, trying to find her way in the world in this very strict structure of Renaissance Venice. Um, She can no longer live in her opulent palace with her family any more than Luca can live in the boatyard with his father. So they both find themselves in this kind of upside down world um, and it's that state of being upside down that that will bring them together she um sees Luca as a, um, a, a conduit or a venue since uh, since he's a, he's a male with a boat um, and um, sees him as a way to start to sell off some of her jewelry. So she's trying to raise some money and is um, secretly trying to sell some of her jewelry without anyone in her family knowing about it um, so that she can secure her future. And Luca becomes an important part of that plan.
0: Great. So um, through Master Trevisan, Luca becomes his private gondolier, as you mentioned, and he meets uh, Giuliana, which is obviously an important part of his, shall we say, his coming of age, because this is basically a coming of age novel in which he finds himself. And the other thing that he um, encounters is this broken down gondola, which becomes, in a way, his path um, how should I put this so that I don't give too much away Um, another path of his towards self-realization
1: Yes, that's right. Um, the first time that Luca visits the studio of Master Trevisan the painter, he um, glides past Trevisan's boathouse and looks inside, and there in the shadows is a dilapidated old gondola, and he recognizes it immediately as... Um, coming from his own family's workshop um probably turned out by the hands of his grandfather in that previous generation and um as much as Luca becomes obsessed with this Giuliana Zanki who appears in Trevisan's workshop he's equally obsessed with this dilapidated boat in Trevisan's boat uh boathouse and he becomes um convinced that it's uh it's his destiny to bring this boat back to
0: life. Um, In some ways, this was the most interesting part of the story for me. I mean, I, I love the, um, I mean, I liked Luca as a character and I I liked Juliana as a character and, and the individuals, you know, Alvis was great. I mean, as I said, people love to read about people like that. Um, But the, The way that um, you explore the craft of gondola making, I thought was completely fascinating because I I mentioned this in a lot of my interviews, and it's a well-known problem with historical novels is that people do so much research and they can't resist putting it all into the book, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, the and even I as a historian do not want to sit and read five pages of background <laughs> to what's That's going right. on right? but this was so lightly done and it was so focused on Luca's experience as he's crafting the boat that it was completely painless I want to congratulate you on managing to do that and to ask you in a little bit how how you were able to do that
1: Oh, well, thank you. I I really appreciate that coming from you, especially. Um, I think that um, a lot of that research on gondola making did end up on the... uh... On the editing room floor, so to speak, and that's a, it is a very painful process to go through. But, um, you know, as I, as I sent the book around to my beta readers, you know, they, they wanted to know the story. They wanted to know what happened to Luca and how was this, this, um, this gondola restoration, you know, the thing that propelled him forward out of this old part of his life and into you know something new. And so I, I tried to just kind of, you know, as much as possible um, create kind of a tension between um, Luca's process of boat restoration and Trevisan's process of creating this portrait of Juliana Zanki so that by the the climax of the story, the boat is done and the painting is done. And um, you know those, those those two creative projects kind of come to fruition at the same time that um, the story itself is, is ready, you know, to to hit its climax as well.
0: Um, yeah, that's an interesting parallel. You had good beta readers and they they really helped you figure this out.
1: I did, yes. I was very lucky. I um, was um, involved in a, a book club just as a participant for years, and um, they are some of the uh, the smartest, uh, most discerning women I've ever known. <laughs> and they also make great cake. So, <laughs> so we, we had a lot, of, a lot of fun. <laughs> and I'm very, very grateful to all of them for uh, for pulling a lot of these things apart and helping me see it, helping me see the story.
0: That's great. Um, now, as I was thinking about your novel and the parts of it I wanted to ask you about, um, as luck would have it, I heard a story on NPR about the wood that Stradivari and the other great Italian violin and cello makers used. Yeah. I don't know if you happened to hear this. It was last Saturday. And uh, specifically, there's a modern forest ranger who apparently has, um, an unusual ability to, to thump on a tree and tell whether he's going to make a great violin. Um, and I thought of, of Luca and his approach to his grandfather's gondola. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what has changed in gondolas since the 16th century.
1: Well, the main thing that has changed since then is just the number of boats that are on the canals, a number of, of handmade gondolas, I should say, that that are on the canals. Um, at the, the time of the gondola maker in the 16th century, it's estimated that there were about 10,000 gondolas on the canals of Venice. Um, today, there are only a handful turned out each year, so of course, you know, the number the, the Numbers of gondolas that are turned out entirely by hand, and there are still some, um, is fewer and fewer. They are um, in the hands of just a... Few small enterprises, um, you know, a couple of family, um, multi-generational multi-gener- enterprises, as well as a, a city-operated co-op um, that, it, that employs a number of specialized artisans um, working in that trade. However, um, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, Venice is one of the top tourist destinations in the world, and tourism is a double-edged sword for Venice. Um, you know, there, there are many downsides, um, namely, you know, water and waste management, the, the controversy of these large cruise ships coming in, um, the crushing crowds, especially at Carnival. Um, the upside to tourism is that it means that there is constantly um a new set of people who are fascinated and who want to know about the history and the culture and the traditions behind these these native arts and um so that in a it, you know in a way has helped to keep a lot of these craft traditions alive, not only in Venice, but elsewhere in the world too. Um, it's just that it's very stark, um, you know, in Venice because the tourism is such a big part of the economy. You know, everyone who travels to Venice wants to take a ride and a gondola and there, there's a lot more awareness of, um, of, of um, authentic carnival masks versus those that are imported from China, even though it's not always easy for the casual traveler to tell those apart. But, you know, there is um, there is still a culture of handmade gondolas that is still alive in Venice. So that's wonderful, especially because gondolas are made of wood, and even though they are made within the highest order of craftsmanship, it doesn't change the fact that Venice is a waterlogged city, and um, they are these boats are essentially perishable. Um, the oldest one that I'm aware of that still exists today um, dates from the middle of the 19th century. So um, they don't last forever, so they have to keep turning them out.
0: That's good to know. Um, what would uh, what would you like readers to take away from the Gondola Maker? <laughs>
1: I hope readers come away with a greater appreciation for this historic tradition and the the craft of gondola making. Um, I hope they come away with um, wondering, as I did, about the role of of craftsmanship in our world and how knowledge is transmitted from one generation to the next. And and most of all, I I just hope they enjoy a a good story.
0: And what about you? Will you write more novels someday, do you think?
1: I will, yes. Right now I'm working on um, what got put on the back burner <laughs> while I was working on the gondola maker. I'm, I'm working on a, a, a new travel guide series called Laura Morelli's Authentic Arts, and it is a series of small city and regional guides that lead people um, beyond the, the, the museums and the tourist traps to discover these authentic crafts. Um, I have my, The first book is coming out at the beginning of the year. It's um, it's on Venice. I also have a guide on uh, Florence, Naples, and the Amalfi Coast, um, Tuscany and Umbria, Sardinia, Sicily, Paris, and Provence. Um, those are rolling out in 2015, and then after that, I, I fully intend to return to historical fiction. I had so much fun writing this book that it's, uh, it's definitely um, time to write another one.
0: And do you have ideas where you're going to go or what you'd like to work on?
1: I am going to um, stay in this theme of what I would call art historical fiction, because certainly that's what I know and what I love, and there are so many interesting stories out there to to bring to life in in a fictional way. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in academia and sitting in academic conferences and hearing some of the smartest people in the world talk about art history, and it's such a fascinating topic. You know, unfortunately, we in academia try to make it as boring as we possibly can. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, I feel like maybe maybe my contribution is that, you know, to try to um, bring some of that rigor of scholarship while at the same time bringing some of that or retaining some of that excitement that's so inherent in art history. It's the most fascinating topic in the world.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, actually, with Russian history, we don't quite have that problem, because there's so much going on. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you so cannot, <laughs> you cannot make them boring, even if you try. <laughs> but, uh, but I agree, I think, and it's not only, um, you know, students of history who would like this, but I think people who Uh, got very bored in their high school history classes and probably never even took college history classes (laughs) because they were so bored, (laughs) they will pick up a historical novel and they will read it and enjoy it. Right. So I wish you all the best and we'll stay in touch so maybe we can talk to you again when you have another novel. Um, And thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: Oh, Thank you, Carolyn. It's been my pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie, and today I've been talking with Laura Morelli, the author of The Gondola Maker. You can find out more about her and her books at www.lauramorelli.com. Like us on Facebook, search for new books in historical fiction, and follow us on Twitter at newbookshistfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. At blog.cplesley.com, I upload expanded posts about the interviews and, in general, discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. The New Books Network is run by volunteers, but we do have expenses. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider visiting our website at http newbooksnetwork.com and making a donation. That's all for today. Please check back soon for another conversation about new books in historical fiction.